we're also going to be now in 1 Peter chapter 5 in our last sermon in our study of this letter written by Peter to this church that was going through uh, a difficult season to say the least. So you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Gene um, read us a preview of, of course, the Christmas story, which we'll look at in more detail next week. But they perfectly line up with the theme uh, above my head and for our last week of considering what it means to just expect or with the celebration of Advent, uh, hope for the coming of the Lord. The theme is peace. And the Christmas story, one of the messages that we just read was delivered into uh, the world at the time of his birth was peace. It will be how Peter ends his message. The, the story we read is very similar to the, the context of what Peter was writing in. It was a message of peace that was given to people who were afraid. As the, the, the shepherds get this heavenly host, another reason to read that is there was this choir of angels singing. We had a choir today. So it's like this picture of this message from God. And they had to tell the shepherds, don't be afraid. They were, they were overcome by fear, and the message counteracted or counterweighted their fear with the, the beautiful message of the gospel. God is invading. Heaven comes to earth with goodwill, a good plan for humanity, and he wants to bring peace. He brought it to a world that was struggling with the opposite of peace. If you just think about the context of the first Christmas, there was all sorts of reasons to feel unsettled or to have a unpeaceful feeling. We know that Jesus came with the expectation of a nation under occupation, Roman rule. It was an unsettling time for the nation of Israel. And Jesus comes into the family of God's choosing that was going through some real personal unsettling times. They were Joseph and Mary uh, penniless, they, had, they were essentially homeless, and they had some unexpected, out-of-order news that they were with child before the actual ceremony of marriage. So there's lots of reasons, both in the outside world and the personal world, where they needed to hear a message of God's favor with a plan to bring peace, and, and it, it brings us to 1 Peter. This whole letter was written to a group of people who were struggling with similar issues. There was all sorts of things in the outside world that was troubling to their hearts and their minds, no doubt. Living still in uh, Roman-occupied territories, and now they are going against the grain. We've used the term pilgrim or exile. They're out of place. They don't fit in. Their home is in heaven, not in the Roman Empire. And they're dealing with all sorts of, uh, of persecution and evil spoken against them. And no doubt there's reason for them to not necessarily feel established. And so Peter writes this entire letter, and we will pick up at the very end of the letter because the point of his writing, in some ways, is to bring them to a place, even before they get to their final destination, of great peace. Look what it says in verse 12. By Salvanus, our faithful brother, as I considered him. This is Peter's farewell and peace. He's giving credit to the one who wrote out the, or dictated the letter for Peter. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, 
probably code for Peter writing from Rome, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So he writes and says, hey, I'm with a, another body of believers here in an outpost of the kingdom. I'm here with Mark, who is the, most likely the gospel writer, Mark. He calls him his son, his spiritual son. And then he says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. So by God's grace, our greeting is already over, so we don't have to figure out how to practically do that this morning. Some of you probably hate it. Some of you probably love it, the Italians in the room. And then he gives a salutation, an end of the letter. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, of course, it is a salutation. He is ending the letter with a sincerely or warm regards, and it's his way of ending all of the things that he exhorted them to stand firm in. But it's more than just Peter saying, peace out. He says, peace to you all. And now rich in theological uh, execution, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Peter is writing to the church in the context of a church going through suffering, and he's giving them the fruit of everything he's saying is you can have peace in Christ. There is a peace that is being offered in everything we've been studying for those who are living in a fallen world in troubling times. And so can we relate? This is why I think it was such a timely use of our Sunday mornings to be studying this. We live in a time, if you just look at the horizon that awaits us as we close one year and begin another. There's all sorts of things that this is not just for the first Christmas or the first church. This is for all who believe. What does it look like for your life to be marked with peace in troubling times? And I wrote down some of the reasons that you may feel a shadow over your head, and you can take notes if you feel fine this morning, for all the impending doom that awaits us in 2024. I've, I've got you covered. Um, there are uh, of course, there's just rumors of economic collapse or continue runaway inflation or recession or depression. And I'm sure some of you feel that now and it's caused a bit of pain in your life. And some of you may be looking at that and thinking, okay, I hope this turns sooner than later. There is uh, rumors of war. There's war that is breaking out in our world and that can escalate. And it could eventually escalate to be the big one. If the wrong people get involved, we might be living in a world with some sort of nuclear bomb that is detonated. That is scary and on the, on the horizon line. Uh, there may be a new deadly virus with new deadly lockdowns. There is rumors of earthquakes and uh, issues with tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and droughts. And there is a world that seems to be in peril. And of course, we also have an upcoming election. So there's impending doom on the horizon, no matter where you look. And bad news, but for all of you who have lived in our little city over the last week, they say that the line at In-N-Out is not going to die down for another couple months. If, <laughs> if you don't believe that there's impending doom, just go to Fairview and Eagle. I actually ran into Scott, one of our sound guys, at In-N-Out, and as we waited for an hour or plus, I won't say how long, to eat. He said, I'm excited to see how you work this into a sermon. So Scott, challenge accepted. <laughs> we got it in. <laughs> now that's the outside world. And no doubt, 
as much as the outside world is waiting, there is personal turmoil that some of you are in right now and some of you don't know you're about to be in. It's just a matter of fact that you are going to need a remedy for the unsettling world and heart and mind that you dwell in. And the remedy that we will look at is not something that you'll need maybe. As we read the verses that lead us to the end of this offer of peace for those who are in Christ, we'll actually look over some of the themes that we've been studying throughout this whole book. We will see that these themes really do end in a, an amazing offer of peace for those who are in Christ. But one of the great themes of this entire book that we've had to look at over and over again is that suffering should not take you by surprise. One thing that all of us, after reading 1 Peter, should be fully aware of is that this life on this side of eternity is going to be hard. But the promise that we end with is that while we wait for the final destination, there is actually a plan or a path that God can put us on for us to be overwhelmed by his peace now that we actually can have peace. So in some ways, we'll do a review of some of the themes of 1 Peter. I hope as we close this book, it doesn't, it doesn't end up collecting dust in the library of your heart. The Bible in many ways is like a medicine cabinet. And I hope that maybe this final sermon will give you some reminders of why it is 1 Peter needs to come off the shelf in your life sometimes. And I hope as we do that, the end of this is that all of us would have an invitation that we accept and we wrestle with and we live out that we're people who are marked by peace. One of the other themes of 1 Peter is that God uses his people to be set apart and holy so we give him glory and the outside world would see how we live. One of the ways the outside world will see you as distinct, separate, and set apart is if you have a peace that surpasses your circumstances. So let's look at how Peter, in these final few verses, can rightfully end by saying peace to all of those who are in Christ. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. This is one of the great lessons as you study First Peter that the strategy of the believer when times get hard, sometimes when things get confusing, when you feel the suffering, is humility that is played out through submission. It, there's so many different questions when you study the topic of humility. Peter's saying, be humbled by the mighty hand of God. What does it look like to be humbled? Well, if you study First Peter and look for an answer of what humility looks like, what you will find over and over and over again is that humility seems to be in step with submission. The the study that we went through, we had almost an entire month where we had to look at topic after topic where things are hard and Peter says, submit. 
With humility, keep submitting. Remember, we studied it for an entire week that these people were living under Roman-occupied rule and the government was not on their side and their response was not to pick up the sword, but it was to live their lives with such good works on display that non-believers would see and glorify God. And he said, submit to the government. I was like, man, let's get through that week. By God's grace, many of you came back the next week. Because that's a hard thing to hear. Because what you're saying is, in humility, I accept the fact that the government has some control over my life. And the qualifier for that was, apart from the government requiring us to sin, we're going to be reasonable people, easy to lead, and we will allow some control to come. And then the next week was just as difficult because we, we left the sanctuary, we all went into our workplace, and some of you had to go into the workplace that was harsh, you had difficult bosses. You had difficult managers. You had difficult work environments. And we read First Peter. He says, some of your suffering is going to come from the outside world when people who have control over your work life are not great leaders. With humility, allow them to control some of your work life. Apart from them calling you to sin, Peter says, keep submitting. And then the third week in that whole little mini-series about submitting and enduring and persevering with humility, trusting God, was maybe the most challenging because at that time, which is no different now, there were some people who were unequally yoked marriages. There were these women who were getting saved and their husbands were not great leaders in the type of leadership that was exemplified in 1 Peter chapter 5 where there are awesome shepherd-like leaders. Some of these women were paired to men who were still committed to paganism or were totally deadbeats in Christianity. And Peter said, this is hard, but endure with humility and keep submitting. In some ways, you have to give up control of your life and just trust that God will care for you. And in all of those, we now get the actual lesson for all of it. This would all fall apart, break down at the seams if we did not have someone who was the chief shepherd, who was the king of kings, the, the ruler of rulers, the one who oversees every household. And now Peter says, the final act of submission, the one that you're actually doing is therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. All humility paired with submission and submission is saying, you have control. Here's one of the great lessons that will turn into peace in your life. This, will, this is one of those lessons that will calm the, the, just the storms of your heart and your mind. God is in control. Submit to that truth. With humility and trust that God is good, this is a book about the sovereignty of God. As we suffer, as we go through persecution, as we go through reviling, there is a spiritual law that will be revealed in our lives that as we humble ourselves under the real control, which is God's sovereignty, he will exalt us in due time. That's the principle that Peter is saying, when you go low, God will lift you up. And this is why we can celebrate this in a week before the great example of that ever coming to earth, because Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he gave it up, humbled himself into a manger, and the Christmas story, of course, cannot stop at a manger. He humbles himself. He comes not to be served, but to serve. He says, my mission is to give my life a ransom for many. He dies on the cross of shame 
and he rises again. There, there is no proper view of Christmas without Easter. And after he rises, he ascends to the right hand of the glory of God. The, the, the message that Peter is delivering is the message of Christ. That when you humble yourself in due time, you will be exalted. God is in control. And then he says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. So verse six and seven are connected. He says, you really want to know how to be humble? Submit to God and give him all of your cares. Throw them on him. Cast him on the Lord. Who cast your cares upon the Lord. This is a challenge with worry. Worry is always a struggle between who is in control of your actual problems. If you're looking for a great, if you struggle with worry, if you're going through a season of worry, if you didn't sleep last night because you were thinking about everything on the radar of the problems of your life, I encourage you to read Matthew chapter six. It is an expose on why worry is pointless and why God's sovereignty is the answer. And Jesus simply says, which of you by worrying can add a cubit, an inch, any height to your stature? You can't. You don't have the ability to change your body. But then he says, look around, look at the birds. They don't gather, they don't toil, they, don't, they just get food. God feeds them. Look at the flowers, it's beautiful. Creation's beautiful. If God cares for the grass of the field that is today here and gone tomorrow, how much more will he care for you? Therefore, do not worry. Trust that the God who is in control has a better view, plan, and power over your life than you do. I've heard so often that the, there's a definition of humility that says humility is thinking about yourself less. That might be true. It's like remove yourself from the center of, of the world. It's very difficult to do because you live with yourself. I mean, you, it's kind of hard to not think about, you know, when you get hungry and when you get tired and when people are talking to you, you're right in the center. So I think maybe a better definition of humility is think about God more. When you do what we did this morning, I wrote it down. It says, the, the lyrics we sang is, holy are you God almighty. And you come into a sanctuary and the spirit was just moving and we're just singing. And I look out, the choir's up here, the choir is out there and I'm moved with tears because I am considered by the grace of God worthy to be counted a number in the family of God. How can I have pride? When God is exalted, you are humbled. And when you are humbled, God will exalt you. You, you want to solve the problem of worry in your life? Have good theology. Study the power of God, the mighty hand of God who oversees creation and all that's in it, who puts breath in your lung and who has your life in a timeline of his view, who knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the hour that you will meet him face to face. He knows the second that the son will come back to rescue the church. Study God, be humbled so that he can exalt you. Humble ourselves. And in all of the challenges and difficulties and pains of our life, it is a call to know God more, know his goodness more. And then it says, as we go on, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There's such a tension in the two verses that we just read. 
In one sense, we just said, cast your cares upon God. He cares for you. The next verse says, there's also a lion who wants to devour you. To trust God with your cares is to, not to be careless. It may make you carefree in your trust of God, but it is to believe in a God who loves you and cares for you. That's why Peter says in quoting this proverb, if you trust God with your cares, know that he cares for you. There is an enemy who wants to devour you. There is a God who loves you. And that is the fork in the road of everything else you'll believe in. I think one of the great moments of evangelism from scripture is the, the very simple fact that we believe in a God who cares. We are part of a culture, if you were here last week, who is becoming, Clark Petticourt shared the alarming statistics that our culture is just becoming less and less interested in a personal God. A God that would be attached to any kind of orthodoxy or theology or holy scripture that we could know him. And more and more and more people are pointing their philosophy or worldview or whatever gives them comfort in their hearts for what is actually out there towards an entirely impersonal force. No doubt there's someone here right now who would rather believe that the universe cares about them than submit to a God who has revealed himself to humanity through his son. And the challenge with choosing the impersonal is that you are not just abandoning religion or all of the ways that God's people are sometimes less than great representatives. You are abandoning the heart of God to care. There is no force or universal idea that can be as personable as a God who says, here's how much I care. The world is lost and dying without me in it. Wherever there is sin, I cannot dwell. All of us are sinners. So I will send my son into the world to be born of a manger, to dwell with the chaos of evil and to absorb that evil himself on a cross. We believe in a God who cares. Now, why do I belabor that? Because when you believe in a God who cares, you realize that there is actually an opposing view. There is actually an adversary. And aren't we shocked by Peter's final revelation of who the adversary is? He says, be sober and vigilant, something that's come up throughout the letter. Stay calm, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, Nero. I mean, if you're not careful, you'll study 1 Peter and every sermon will be about Rome and how evil Nero was. And he certainly was a manifestation of evil or how challenging pagan culture was. It certainly wasn't great to be a Christian in first century Roman empire. But that was not the identified adversary as given to us by the apostle Peter. He said, the adversary is actually Satan. The adversary is one that opposes God in a spiritual realm with spiritual darkness and forces that actually go against the people of God in ways that are so much more dangerous than how we often view it. And for those who have left an impersonal God, they also have no view of personal evil. And so we resist that idea. And we realize that 
It's so important that we would identify the actual adversary. Why? If we fall into the temptation of thinking the adversary is Nero or Roman culture or the evil neighbors that have made life difficult for the first church, and then we apply the same standard to our time. We think the adversary is actually the evil powers that be in the government. The adversary is actually the evil, the evil forces of a, a pagan culture, or the adversary is those who speak evil against us as non-believers. We will totally fight the battle at the wrong level. If the adversary is political, of course, all we can do is vote. If the adversary is a foreign land, all we can do is fight with our military. If the adversary is your pagan neighbor, all you can do is win the debate. But if the adversary is actually spiritual, then we can look to God, seek him in the spiritual realm, and cry out to God through prayer. If we cared about prayer as much as we cared about politics, I think that the enemy that dwells in our day would be retreating and not taking ground. And this is the answer that Peter will give to the first church and to this church. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He says, resist him. Don't deny his existence. Wherever there is a bend towards evil that has been infused through politics or culture or your neighbor, you resist it. We, we actually stand firm in the truth of God's word. We are not people who just believe everything and everyone has their personal worldview and we respect and honor everything. Wherever the culture or the politics or the churches or the people are going against the truth of God's word, we stand firm. James says, if you resist Satan, he'll flee. I've heard some commentators say that He's given a picture of a roaring lion because all he can do at this point is roar. His fangs have been ripped out. His claws have been taken out by the power of the cross. The final enemy of death has been defeated and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Stand firm in the faith of who we believe in. And we don't have to fight all of these subcategory wars because we know how the story ends. He also says one of the strategies in standing firm is to remember those who are suffering. Verse nine, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. One of the, one of the great challenges, one of the great burdens of persecution and suffering is that the roar of Satan will come and say, where is your God now? Where's, where's, your, where's, your, where's your living hope, God, now that you've got the diagnosis? Where is it now that your family's going through it and your child is wayward? Where is your God? Where is it now that you've lost the narrative of your country and it's going downhill? Where's your God now? To isolate a believer, to make them feel abandoned and alone. And what does Peter say? Just remember that this is happening at a global level. And so I, I can't help but see Nagme right here. I'm so grateful for the church that we belong to. We remember the sufferings of this little tiny city that God has brought all of these people as refugees to. 
I pointed out Nagme because we get to meet through Zoom with the underground church in Iran. The underground church in Iran that has fled to Turkey and they will do anything to find an internet connection to open up their screen just to be in the word together because they are living in a world where they can't just come and worship and stand behind a pulpit and hang door flyers for their next Easter concert. All they have is the Holy Spirit and each other. So we go through and we say, yeah, I remember that. Thank you. I remember this African choir who has come here in persecution. They fled where they came from. They resisted. They had to come here. I remember their pain and I remember their hurt and I remember that God is faithful still. And you want to know who worships sometimes the loudest? is the brotherhood who is suffering. Those who have gone through the trial and they have stayed steadfast and they've resisted and they've not lost the faith. And on the other side, they realize that this peace that is promised is real. The, the living hope is not dead. They've survived the fire. Remember them. Whatever you're going through right now, you're not alone. Whatever God is allowing through his control and his sovereignty to test your faith and mold you and shape you as someone that is coming through it on the other side. You are not alone and there are those who have gone before you who are worshiping louder than the rest of us. Now finally he says in verse 10, may the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. It's one of those verses you can underline kind of hesitantly, but it's so important. Four words, after you have suffered. The suffering has an end. Good Friday had a resurrection. There is nothing that God begins in his call to eternity that he is not faithful to complete and to establish and to settle. Last week, Clark Petticord said, no one promised we'd be winning at halftime. This week, I can promise you, you'll be winning when the clock's hit zero. There is victory in Christ. The suffering is for a little while. And one of the themes, and I think one of the secrets to peace that will rule your life, as, as the Apostle Paul will say, it will guard your heart, it will surpass your comprehension, is that we do, we are people who continually, sometimes we just have to drag it out of our hearts, we continually lift our view to eternity. He said, but may the God of all grace who called us to, not to suffer simply for the sake of suffering. He didn't just call us to Boise, Idaho for the sake of living. It says he called us to eternity. And you cannot have an honest view of 1 Peter without leaving with a refreshed view of heaven. And in the promise of heaven that we are exiles on earth, wherever you live, it is not your forever home. Someone will live in it after you. The promise is 
that it is kept and secured by the mighty hand of God. This is not a study in who can obey this command the best and then follow out the command so that some of us would get by by our great execution of the strategy of Peter. He says, may the God of all grace. It is by grace that you are in the family of God. It is by grace that all of us can hear the story of God so loving the world that he sent his son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. You have been called by grace. You stand firm in grace. In whatever way you're suffering, in the examples I share for the the brotherhood that suffers around the world, they're not super saints in theology or in execution or in discipline. Some of them do great. Some of them probably have a ways to go. But they are super blessed in grace. Wherever God calls you to endure and to humbly submit, he also calls you to experience the God of all grace, the undeserved favor, the power of God working on your behalf while you rest in him. And the God of all grace is calling us to suffer for a little while and then to eternal glory. And none of you are excluded from that formula. Every one of you are called to suffer for a little while and you are called home to eternity in the blink of an eye. And this is one of those anchors of your peace. Everything that we've discussed this morning, when you hold tight to these truths, you're holding tight to the peace, the calm, the, the, the Jesus who sits in a storm and sleeps because at a word, the waves will be calm. You hold tight to peace. So what are they? I'll briefly share them with you and then we're going to celebrate. We looked at the first promise. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The hand of God is the promise that he is in control. You will unlock peace in your heart, in your mind, when you just admit to yourself through humility and proclaim the goodness of God that he is in control and you are not. God is in control. Here's another truth that will... Anchor your peace in your life. Cast your cares upon him, it says. Why? Because God cares. There's two words. Simple, a lifelong pursuit of holding on to that. And the more you believe that God cares about your life, the more you live in the peace of God. There's not one detail of your life that God is not willing to receive as a burden that he will deal with. He cares. I'm a father. My kids bring me stuff all the time. I care about it. I'm a father who sins. I'm a father who struggles with evil. How much more does the father in heaven care about every detail of your life? Hold on to the truth that he cares. Hold on to this supernatural peace. And then finally, the God of all grace who has called us, not by works, lest anyone should boast, the God of all grace has called you. This is not random. You're not here by accident. You didn't sneak in through the back door of the church. 
This is not a message that is for some of you and some of you just outside looking in, you'll never be part of the family of God. God has called you to hear the message of his sovereignty over your life, his love for your soul and his ability to call you all the way to eternity after you've suffered for a little while. Now hold on to those. This is our study in 1 Peter. 1 Peter now lives in your heart like a bottle of medicine in the cabinet. And anytime you lack peace, anytime the horizon line looks bleak and you lack hope, you pull out this truth and you remember that the God who is in control of heaven and earth cares about you and he's called you to eternity. And for that, we enjoy this final verse for that, not for anything else. We could praise him forever, but it has nothing to do with preaching or our singing or our church chairs for, for his sovereignty and his love and his power to finish what he completes. Verse 11, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate the reality of God's love, this invitation to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, than by holding in your hand the body and the blood. That he cared for you enough to die on the cross for your sins. He took on your burden of sin and your foolishness and your wayward life and you threw it, you cast it onto his cross. And he cared enough to humble himself at the mighty hand of God to say, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, Father. And he carried his cross to Golgotha and he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. And this forgiveness is for all of us to celebrate in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, this morning is a celebration of the good news that God loves you and he cares for you. If you're not in Christ, Christ. This is, you stop at the first, very first verse we looked at. You need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There is a God who is in control of the universe and everything in it. He knew you in your mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He is willing to give you newness of life if you just ask for his spirit. And then it says that he has good works prepared beforehand that you would walk in. He has a plan for your life. And until you know his plan, you will never have peace. So I invite you to humble yourself and receive him as your Lord, as your Savior.